Welcome to this episode of the Farm Exec Podcast. I am Meg Rivers, the Managing Editor of the Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine and your podcast host. The Farm Exec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights to master the science of success. On this week's episode, I will speak with Elizabeth, or Beth for short, Garner, who is the Chief Scientific Officer for the US specifically at Fearing Pharmaceuticals. We discuss reproductive health, fertility care, and contraception, and there's tons of trends and new developments and technologies, including some talk about AI in the space. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with the interview. Hey there, Andy Studnett, co-host of the Applied Clinical Trials podcast here. Check out brand new episodes of the ACT podcast every two weeks on Tuesdays at 10. And you can find past episodes plus much more by logging on at AppliedClinicalTrials.com. All right, Beth, thank you so very much for joining me today. My pleasure. I would like to jump right into the questions. And the first question I love to ask folks is, tell me about yourself. What has your journey into the world of pharma been like? And did you see yourself working in this industry? Well, so to answer the third part of that question first, I absolutely did not foresee ever being in industry. I think I was you know, generally not really well educated on the fact that there was this whole world of medicine you know, outside of taking care of patients. So for me, definitely didn't anticipate being where I am now. In terms of my background, well, I was actually born and raised in Nigeria. I'm the daughter of an American Peace Corps volunteer and a Nigerian engineer. So I grew up there through high school and then came to the U.S. for college and my medical training and then ended up staying here. I trained in obstetrics and gynecology. I did a fellowship in GYN oncology. So, you know, I took care of very, very sick patients who had various cancers of the reproductive organs. So Tough work, but really gratifying. During my training years and sort of early in practice, I did go back to Nigeria frequently. You know, my whole family really was over there. And in going back, I began to see some really enormous differences, right, in healthcare between the US and Nigeria. And at the same time, I was also realizing there were differences between, if you want to call it the haves and the have nots, right here in the US as well. So those two things were sort of colliding and just, you know, leading to some sort of questions in my mind about, well, what can I do about these inequities? So that was sort of back there as I was continuing to take care of patients. At the same time, I got pretty frustrated in terms of the treatments that we were using, right? For many of the, really the most serious conditions that women deal with, women and their babies. And that also got me thinking about what could I do to, to improve women's health? You know, as an example, it was always shocking to me and still is, you know, that we would use a really ancient medicine, I mean, magnesium, right, to treat conditions, really serious conditions. And these were treatments that have been used for years that really didn't work either. And we would use, as an example, magnesium, like I said, for hypertension, like for preeclampsia, but also to treat preterm labor. And these were, you know, sort of very different conditions. And I couldn't understand why we only had one treatment that really didn't work and had risk for the baby as well. And all of that, again, plus, you know, the, the, the inequities continue to lead me to think about, you know, how can I have an impact? And then later as a G1 oncologist, I also saw the lack of progress in treatment, right? Especially with ovarian cancer. 
you know, I would do like the perfect surgery, remove every morsel of cancer, and I would be back in six months. I was like, how is this okay? You know, we need better treatments. So, you know, when thinking about this, again, I hadn't really yet sort of thought that I'd be in industry. It, for me, it really landed, sort of just landed in my lap, right? I was recruited by Merck. And I'm just very, very fortunate. I mean, the journey has been incredible to your question. I've just been really lucky to have many amazing experiences working on the HPV vaccine, helping to launch a hereditary cancer test, taking a new uh, low-dose contraceptive patch through clinical trials to approval, all of that. But, you know, with all that said, there's so, so much more to do, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And that's what keeps me going. I think what's also amazing about being at a place like Faring, and we'll talk a little bit more about Faring as well, is this ability that I've had felt really to improve women's lives at scale. Now, I'd also realized during my clinical years that I felt limited by only being able to treat one patient at a time. I wanted to have greater impact, global impact, and do that working in this industry. So you had said that you worked for Merck, and that was how you got involved in the industry. Could you yeah. tell me a little bit about that? Because I find it fascinating that you were a practicing physician and surgeon and then made this, this really big shift. Could you tell me yeah. a little bit more about that? Yeah. As I said, you know, all these things that I was sort of seeing, you know, um, during my practicing years, you know, the, the limitations in innovation, you know, using the same medications for years and years and years and years and years, as well as, you know, how do I, I love taking care of patients, but it's one person at a time. I need bigger impact, you know, and actually during medical school, I had done a master's in public health. So clearly even early on, I knew that I wanted to have larger impact beyond you know, what you can do as a clinician. And so I'm, I was sort of thinking about it, still going about my daily job, right? But not really yet having a plan. And uh, one of my mentors actually end up, ended up going into industry and that sort of opened it up for me like, aha, maybe this is the way, right? But it still took a couple of years before anything really happened. And again, it really, it landed in my lap. I got an email from Merck saying, hey, you know, we're interested in having someone, a GYN oncologist specifically come and help us with our HPV vaccine program. And that was the moment of like, oh my gosh, wow, there really is a potential to do this on a greater scale, right? And to really have impact. And, you know, I will never forget that interview. It was just so impactful. I mean, these were just super smart, brilliant people, many of whom, mind you, had trained at my hospital, right, from Brigham Women's. And so that was sort of seeing that connection and realizing people who had trained similarly to experience could do this, right? So seeing the potential impact of, in this case, it was HPV vaccination, I really jumped at the opportunity, right? So it is an interesting change to make. I will say back then, what, 25 years ago, something like that, it wasn't a very common thing to do at all. And when you're coming from an academic center at that time, I heard all kinds of things like you're going to the dark side. Oh my gosh, how could you, you know, sell your soul? And that's not how it felt to me at all. And since then we're seeing more and more, right? Physicians are realizing, wow, I can really do some great work in the pharma industry. So it's like I said, been an incredible journey. And I definitely feel with all the opportunities that I've had, that I have had greater impact, right, um, than I would have been able to as a clinician. Without getting too much into the technical stuff, and this might mostly be for my information as compared to the audience, sure. but are you still working as a physician or are you fully in pharma? No, I don't see patients anymore. I do keep okay. my license up just in case, but 
Okay. So then when you shifted from a working physician to working in pharma, what did that look like? Did you participate in the research? Just in general, kind of what did that look like? Yeah. I mean, there's a wide range of things that physicians do in the industry. For me, I was on what we call the clinical team, right? So developing study protocols, designing studies, right? How do we do this trial? What's it going to take? What are the endpoints we're looking at? A lot of the work was regulatory, meaning making sure that our protocols, studies we were planning to do were going to be agreed to with the FDA and other regulatory authorities. And then it was running the trials, right? Helping to just the operational part, right? I didn't actually do that work, but I certainly was supporting the operations, right? And ensuring that we followed our protocol, did exactly what we planned to. Safety is a huge part of it, obviously, you know, ensuring that your products are safe, especially during the the clinical trial period. And then a big piece of my work, at least, was taking, you know, the massive amounts of data that we gather from our clinical trials and putting them together into very detailed, very clear documents, reports, right, of the clinical trials and putting that all together as what we call a submission, right, that then goes to whichever regulatory body, in my case, often the FDA, to say, okay, look, we've, we've studied this vaccine in thousands and thousands of women and men. We've shown it's safe. We've shown it's effective. Here are all the data. And then FDA, of course, does that extensive review to be in, to ensure that they agree. And that's when you ultimately go through the review process and ultimately, hopefully, get your product approved. So it's a really interesting process, a lot of collaboration with all kinds of, you know, folks, statisticians, the manufacturing folks are obviously critical, right? You need to be able to show the FDA that you know how to manufacture your product and that it's doing what you expect it to do. Collaborations with the regulatory teams, also critical. And then once the product is approved, the clinical folks still have a pretty big role in terms of making sure that the medical people who are out there talking to physicians, telling them about the product, have the right information, right? And also ensuring that even from a commercial perspective, right, what's being described out there on the the commercial people talk about your product, that it's all accurate, correct, you know, and done in a way that is, you know, consistent with regulatory rules. The next thing I want to talk about is your work at Faring Pharmaceuticals. Could you tell me what your role is there and what you do and perhaps what you're hoping to do as well with, you know, the products and stuff at the company? I've been at Faring now, not quite a year, almost. And I'm the U.S. Chief Scientific Officer. And what that means, pretty broad role, but actually sort of goes back to kind of what I was talking about a minute ago, right? So in, in many ways, I'm still doing a lot of that work that I had just described, but more sort of managing, right? So I have uh, clinical development teams that work with me. I also head up the regulatory team, the medical affairs team. So those are the people who ensure that from a medical standpoint, you know, our relationships and discussions with key opinion leaders, we call them in the field, are, are appropriate and correct. And then also biometrics, which are, you know, our statisticians and programmers and so on. And then lastly, very important is what we call pharmacovigilance, right? So this is the monitoring of safety that happens once a product is out there being used. It's really, really critical, obviously, to continue to follow from a safety perspective. So all of those folks report up into me. So it's a pretty broad role. In terms of what I hope to do, for me, 
innovation is huge, right? I think everything I've been lucky enough to participate in along the way over these last, what, 15 years or so of, of industry, there's always been innovation. And if you think back to what I was talking about, you know, some of my frustrations in clinical medicine was there was no innovation. I was just like, how are we using these same products? So for me, it's all about developing new things, new, better treatments for various conditions. Faring is just the type of company that one would want to work for. It's research-driven. It's a global company, so it has a global view of health. And we are absolutely in the U.S. a leader in reproductive medicine and maternal health. So for me, obviously, that those are my sweet spot. And we've truly been at the forefront there you know, of innovation. We're also emerging as a leader in neuro-oncology, right? We have a recent approval of Adstiladrin, which is a novel gene therapy treatment for bladder cancer. We're also leading now in the microbiome space, which is super exciting, and received an approval last year for Rebiota, which is the first live biotherapeutic that has ever been approved by FDA. So super exciting stuff. And for me, to your question of what would I like to do, I definitely am so excited to continue advancing these projects, right? As, you know, continue. It's always about continuing to advance the pipeline both in reproductive medicine and maternal health, but also in these two really, really important areas to look for other ways, right? Potential for these assets that we have in the microbiome and gene therapy to look at, well, what are new indications? What are new treatment modalities? What more can we do with these products? That's what we always talk about in terms of, you know, life cycle management. So for me, it's really exciting right now, especially exciting time with these two new approvals as well as all the innovation that we're trying to do in the reproductive medicine space. So a lot going on and certainly a lot for the future to look forward to. Definitely want to talk to you in the future, not for this episode on the gut health and rebiota. I'm so curious about that. But today though, I do want to focus on reproductive health and women's health. So in 2022 and 2023, there's been a lot of discussion, as I'm sure you know, surrounding reproductive health and women's rights. And I'm curious from your perspective, what have been the needs of patients and how have you been working to address those needs? A lot of needs, that's for sure. And just as you said, I mean, with the recent decisions by the Supreme Court, we certainly know, we know for sure, right, that access to reproductive health is no longer certain. And that's all aspects of reproductive health, right? I mean, you can think about just the narrow decision, right? But it's much broader than that, right? You know, this could go even to such things that we just have assumed are safe, contraception, right? And for us, you know, in the fertility space, you know, we certainly see that there are potential threats there as well for women's reproductive access. So certainly here at Faring, I mean, it's it's really important to do what we can, at least in the reproductive medicine space, to ensure that there's continued access to fertility care, right? That's critical. We have millions of patients who rely on us to be able to build their families. And, you know, we really are focused on ensuring access to anyone, anyone who might want to start or grow their families, really regardless of income. So that's another big piece for us is not only the access from a policy standpoint, but ensuring that folks who really can't afford, you know, to pay for fertility treatment are are able to get it. So we're doing a lot of work in that area again as well. We're also seeing, you know, there's there's just so much diversity. To me, it's really exciting. We're seeing really different types of aspiring parents coming in, right? You know, you've got same-sex couples, you've got folks of different races that historically hadn't really been, you know, showing up for fertility care. And that to me is just is really exciting and faring is really thinking about how do we make sure that the process for them is customized, right? 
there are certainly issues for sure in, you know, especially in the black community, issues around trust and can we really trust these doctors? And so, you know, we're partnering with a lot of groups. We're partnering with Resolve, which is an advocacy group for fertility to, again, make sure that there's access as well as, you know, customized care for, for the patients that need it. So that's kind of reproductive health, sort of specifically fertility. We also, though, face a huge crisis, which I'm sure you're aware of, in maternal health, right? That was just, and sort of the pandemic really shed light on in the U.S. what's going on and just ongoing and worsening health inequities, right? Death rates of pregnant women in the U.S. I mean, it's like one of the worst among wealthy countries and on par with some of the poorer countries in the world. And that's just not okay, right? Especially when you look at women of color who are twice as likely to die in childbirth as wealthy white mothers. So that's just shocking stuff. Again, not acceptable. And we do have a growing government affairs team here, which is very focused on this issue. And again, looking to partner with advocacy groups to do what we can as a company to help improve that aspect of uh, reproductive medicine and maternal health. So a lot to do. A very exciting time, though, because I think that bearing, given our reputation in the space, can really have some impact. Thank you for sharing. This is a subject that I personally am very passionate about. I'm listening to you and I'm like getting goosebumps. So this is really such important work. And you had mentioned gaining trust mm. with regards to communities of color, specifically the Black community. And I had interviewed quite a few folks for a recent feature about DEI. Mm-hmm. And they had talked about how trust is such a difficult component yeah. of regaining that trust. Yeah. Um, and education is part of it. it has yeah. that been your experience too, like educating and kind of forming bonds with these various communities? For sure, right? It's interesting though. I mean, education is critical for sure, right? But education without the trust doesn't go anywhere, right? So even before the education, it's gaining trust, just as you said, right? So it's that cultural awareness. It's all of those things that are very soft and yet so important, right? So, and it's so interesting because I realized this pretty early when I was, you know, in clinical practice that even though I was a woman of color, I just assumed, well, I'm going to have trust with, you know, all uh, black patients, of course. And, and no, I, I was part of the healthcare system. So There were times, not with every patient, but there were certainly several patients that came in and you can see they're like, you're going to have to gain my trust before I, you know, agree to have you whatever, take me to surgery or so it's a huge, huge issue. One additional thought there on the trust issue is this statistic that we look at around, you know, women dying in childbirth. And it's fascinating that those differences between white and black, if you just want to use those two races they're present regardless of the levels of of education. So you can have Black women who are college educated or even higher who still face those inequities. And for me, I firmly believe a lot of that is trust. You'll you'll hear if you talk to enough folks, right? If you go to enough meetings of sort of advocacy groups and things like that, you'll hear women talk about, I don't trust that the healthcare system is going to take care of me in my pregnancy. I've seen way too many of my friends or whoever die yeah, I have a college education, but I still don't believe I'm going to be treated well. So you know what? I'm not even going to have my baby in the hospital. I'm going to go, you know, to some sort of a local delivery. I'm blanking on the term, but, you know, I think I'll be treated better there. And of course, chances are, right, you know, the, the likelihood of something bad happening if there's a complication is far greater than, you know, being in, you know, sort of a tertiary care, say, hospital. So, but women are choosing not to go literally because they don't trust they'll be treated right. 
So that's kind of the clinical aspect. And then if you think about clinical trials, which I spend a lot of time on, we have really a long way to go in terms of ensuring diversity in clinical trials. That's also a trust issue, right? I think companies tend to think, well, if I just put a couple posters up in the black neighborhood there, people will come to my clinical trial. No way, right? So there's a lot that needs to be done in that area around training, you know, physicians who work and live in the areas where these patients are. So it's not such a big journey. There's no expectation of, you know, people having to, you know, it's also just a distance thing, right? If, you, if you're 10 miles away from the closest clinical trial center, or often a lot further than that, or you can go down the street to your physician who's been trained on the clinical trial, you're much more likely not only to have the trust, but the access to. So there's so much to talk about on the DE&I, and, but I agree 100% that at the core of it, is trust, and then you can, you know, move on with education and, you know, the other aspects. Getting back to some of the reproductive health, I'm curious, when you hear reproductive health, many people will think of Mm. women's health, but what have you seen in the space of men's reproductive health specifically, if anything? Yeah, it's really an exciting time because, you know, I think folks are sort of realizing, well, you know, wait a minute, right? You know, infertility isn't just about the female, right? It's often a male factor, right? Probably up to 30% of the time, if not more, it's a male factor and not a female factor that's, that's limiting the ability to get pregnant. So it's, I think, a really important conversation to be having right now. Interestingly, and you know, Faring is very, very interested in this specific area. And in fact, we actually are, are recruiting. We have a trial that's going on, we call it the Adam study, that is testing FSH or follicle stimulating hormone in men, men who are known to have what we call idiopathic infertility, right? So have been unsuccessful with their female partner who has ideally had a baby previously. So you know the fe- it's not of the female issue and yet they're not able to conceive. And so we know there's something going on. We don't know exactly what it is. That's why we call it idiopathic infertility. But we're testing FSH in these men to see whether maybe this improves either their semen counts or the quality in particular of their semen. And uh, we're really, really interested to see, you know, the results of that trial. It'll be a while still we get the till we get the results, but super exciting for us because we firmly believe that the male aspect of this also needs to be addressed for sure. And we're not the only companies that are looking at this. There are, there are a number of other companies that are doing different things. I don't know that there's anyone who's actually using FSH, for instance. But there are companies that are looking at, for instance, like home diagnostics, you know, to test semen, making it just easier for males to sort of, you know, self-diagnose whether there may be a, a semen issue. There's, there's a lot going on from a tech perspective. And I know you have, I think you have a question about that, but also about providing like virtual care. It can be difficult for, for males when they're going through this process, but um, figuring out ways to help, you know, again, back to education but also empowering men, right? And, you know, to take action on their, on their fertility. So a lot happening. And we just attended the uh, Reproductive Health Innovation Summit recently. There's a lot of discussion about male infertility and, and uh, you know, what can be done there. That's really awesome that, you know, your company specifically is yeah. working in this area, that there are other companies as well. I've also heard about new contraceptive treatments for yeah. men too. So I feel like there's a lot of great stuff going on in this space. But getting to technology, which you had referenced before, what are some of the latest technologies in fertility treatment? And this could be for men and or women. I would say, I mean, there's there's so much, but one of the biggest areas right now is in the space of AI, right? So 
trying to better understand which embryos, right, that may look perfect, right, and may have every indication, right, that an embryo, meaning this is now a fertilized egg that's been put together with the sperm and is, you know, it's a little embryo and needs to be put back right into the uterus. So you do that embryo transfer, put the, put the embryo back. Which ones are going to be successful? It's amazing that as advanced as fertility treatment has become, the one sort of black box, if you want to put it that way, is what actually happens when that embryo gets put back into the uterus? What are the factors that determine whether that becomes pregnancy or not? We really don't know. It's amazing. We also don't have a treatment for that, right? There is one that's out there in development that hasn't gotten very far yet. But we really need, if we're going to kind of move the needle on, you know, outcomes in terms of the percentage of IVF cycles that actually end up with a baby, we're really going to have to figure that out, right? And AI is a way that is being used to look at these embryos, looking at thousands of potential factors that might impact the success of an embryo once it's implanted. And there's nothing yet, I would say, that's sort of there that's like, ah, we've got the profile of the perfect embryo. But I'm definitely uh, optimistic. All the work that's going on in AI, many, many companies that are doing this work, optimistic that that will, that will get us somewhere to, you know, to be able to move that needle. There's also a lot of work going on. I think I sort of alluded to this earlier around, you know, just better technology for patients as they go through the journey, right? Not only just the infertility journey, right? Of kind of learning how to measure their hormones and all of that and sort of figure out when am I most fertile, but for people who have issues with infertility, also using technology to be able, while they are going through that fertility journey of, or of, of uh, IVF, of using technology to help kind of smooth that process and make it better. Bering's doing a lot of work, not only for patients, but also for providers as well. So we have a very interesting tech innovation. It's like an e-learning platform called FertilityWise that is actually designed to support fertility staff, right? So we've got this really amazing kind of online library. It has all various modules on sort of reproductive endocrinology and prior preservation and all this really great information for staff that are sort of starting off in the space and learning. So we're driving education, not only for patients, but also for providers as well. So those are a few things. It's exciting. And I think we're really focused in this area. So, you know, when we think about, you know, business development and stuff, we're definitely looking out for other companies that are doing interesting things with technology in this space. When you had mentioned AI as a technology, from what I'm understanding, it sounds like AI is being used to collect and assess data. Am I understanding correctly? Yeah. So the idea is, I mean, the way AI works really for anything, as you probably know, is really to identify patterns, right? That's the whole reason we do this, right? You know, another example is AI is being used to predict, if you're starting a clinical trial, to actually predict which patients are more likely to stay in the trial or drop out. Right. That's amazing that you can use, you know, thousands and thousands of people's data to sort of be able to pinpoint, identify, you know, what's the pattern for that type of person? How do we find the type of person that's going to stay in my clinical trial? Right. Because for clinical trials, dropout is a huge problem all the time. So that's kind of one example. In the IVF space, what we're doing is again looking for patterns. So you take data from thousands and thousands and thousands of embryos, and it could be the size, 
the shape, the various components that you can look at under the microscope, right? Various genetic components that you can look at and throw this all into one huge big database and then ask AI to sort of figure out what are the key factors? What's the profile? What's the pattern that I'm looking for that can say, ah, if an embryo looks just like this, that has all these aspects of the pattern that we've identified, it's got a, you know, 90%, hopefully we can get there somewhere, 90% likelihood that it will be a successful pregnancy. I know this is going to be hard to put a finger on it and point to a thing, but in general, from what you've seen, what are some of the unmet needs in fertility care and what innovations can help address those? I don't know if you think like AI can help or different technologies, but I'm, I'm curious what you feel as far as innovations could help address these. I mean, I definitely think that AI can help, you know, as I sort of described that kind of that black box, we don't understand what happens with the embryo once it's put back in the uterus. If we can, you know, with AI, that is a huge unmet need, right? Because success rates grew for quite a number of years as the laboratory. Remember, there are folks in the laboratory that take the egg, they take the sperm, they put it, you know, mix it up together and you get a, you know, fertilization. And that technology has, I mean, some might argue with this, but I believe it's kind of reached, it's gone as far as it can, you know, like what those embryologists can do in the lab. Again, you know, an embryologist might disagree, but I say that because the success rates have remained around the same, right? So despite all of the new, you know, various things that are being done to try to improve that lab piece of it, we're staying at around 40% of the time you've got a success, you know, with IVF, right? And it's really is for me that what goes in, that what happens with that embryo, if we can figure that out and figure out treatments or pattern for what the best embryos are to implant, huge unmet need because we, I think, have the potential then to take this plateauing success rate of around 40%, increase it, right? And IVF doctors would be thrilled if we were even able to increase it by 10%, right? If it became maybe 50% likelihood or 60% likely, right, of a successful pregnancy, because, you know, the pain and the suffering and the and expense of going through an, an infertility cycle that doesn't work is just enormous, right? So, you know, we need to think, think of ways we can increase. So for me, that's a huge unmet need. So beyond the unmet need of sort of the procedure itself and how to improve outcomes, there are a whole host of unmet needs that we've kind of touched on a little bit in the space around education. You know, we know just from looking at data that it takes women a very, very long time, much longer than it should, to actually first identify that they've got a fertility problem. And not just women, but, you know, families, you know, people who are trying to grow their families. It takes way too long for them to sort of realize, wait a minute, not working here. And then, even then, it still takes a while for them to finally sort of get to the IVF doctor, right? So there's a delay there. And so we're doing work in that space to try to shorten that time frame, right? By providing education, we're, we're collaborating with Robin, which is a really interesting company that has sort of an online platform for education. So we're working with them to really increase that. It's a text-based platform and we're just really trying to connect folks who now realize they might have an issue to help connect them with trained fertility coaches to help them and then help them sort of get into that journey of, of IVF. So. A lot of work there. 
but there's still issues around stigma within fertility, right? Not even just for your sort of regular same, you know, um, male, female couple, but certainly among same sex couples who might want to have a baby, LGBTQ, definitely an issue. There's a lot of stigma and a lot of barriers to them getting reproductive health services. So again, we're trying to do a lot of education in that space as well. And then access as just the ability to pay, right, for fertility care. Fortunately, there's a lot going on in that space. More and more employees are offering benefits for fertility. In fact, more and more you're you're seeing families who are considering a job at a, a company and they find there's no benefits for fertility care. And they're like, no, I need this. So companies more and more are providing that help to reduce the, the burden from a, an affordability standpoint. So yeah, again, a lot going on. Are there other ways to address the affordability of fertility treatments beyond companies offering that benefit? Well, I think we're going to see probably over the coming years more efficiency in the space. I think that as we learn more, like I was saying with the AI and so on, the risk of failure becomes less. And so hopefully kind of overall, you know, the prices can can hopefully come down as, uh, you know, obviously the fertility doctors need to get their, you know, their revenues and so on to keep their practices going. But once there's less risk, you know, there will be an ability somewhat to potentially lower those costs for patients. That I can think of. And uh, I think for the most part, the way we're really going to, and the way most of the industry is addressing the access issue from an affordability standpoint is really through having more and more companies pay for it as a benefit. My next question for you is related to trends. What trends are you seeing in the contraception and or fertility treatment space? That's a great one. I would say for fertility, AI for sure, as we've talked about, that is a major trend that we're seeing in the space. In terms of the actual treatment, I would say probably really this increase that we just talked about in terms of coverage, right, benefits, that has really, really accelerated, and I hope will continue to accelerate, you know, to allow as many people as as possible to get fertility care, right? So that's big. I would say tech is a huge trend in the space. Going to that uh, conference that I mentioned, Reproductive Health Innovation Summit, so much happening in the tech space, a lot of it around Again, sort of information, apps that patient can use, you know, sort of through their journey. But we're even seeing, you know, things like home testing, right? Not only for, uh, say, semen analysis and so on, but we're seeing companies thinking about how can we really reduce the burden for patients as they're going through the process, right? So it's it's a tough process. You know, you've got lab tests, you know, sort of almost daily at times. What if you could have those lab tests done at home or at least allow the patient to collect the specimen at home and send it to you as sort of a nearby facility, right? So we're seeing more and more of that happening to try to reduce, again, burden. There's a company that's, I think, really interesting. And again, the trend here that these are different modalities, but the, the general trend is to reduce the burden on patients, right? So this, there's really interesting company that's developing an ultrasound, like a self-administered ultrasound. So women could, you know, during that IVF process, women have to go in very frequently to get ultrasounds, especially when they're about to put the embryo back in the uterus to make sure that the lining has developed appropriately. 
it's really burdensome to have to drive in and drive, you know, sort of daily for these ultrasounds. And if you could find a way that women could do those at home and digitally send the picture in, wow, now you've really changed the land, the landscape. So we'll see if that's uh, successful. But for sure, a big trend I'm seeing in the field is, is trying to, again, just reduce the burden for women for, and honestly for, for their physicians as well. What are your predictions for the contraception and fertility treatment spaces in the coming years? Again, it's hard to like point a finger <laughs> to the thing or have a hand on a crystal ball. But if you did, you know, curious what your thoughts there. Yeah, well, I think, look, I'm optimistic around the power of AI. We've seen it working in a number of areas. So I don't see a reason why ultimately it, it couldn't be successful in this space as well, right? Specifically back to, you know, sort of figuring out the, the embryo thing that we talked about, right? And being able to predict. So that's a prediction that hopefully we'll get there. I think that for sure, I predict that because women and their families, uh, I include men here as well, LGBT, everyone is truly becoming more and more aware of fertility and their rights, right, um, to fertility. We're going to see more and more diversity, I guess is the best word, in the types of people that are getting fertility treatment. You know, historically, it's been, generally speaking, fairly wealthy, usually Caucasian. You know, that's your typical patient who's going through IVF. And we're going to see that change in the next, you know, decade or so, I strongly believe, just because of, you know, the way it's going and education. And hopefully, honestly, hopefully, you know, some of it will be some of the impact from from the work Faring is doing along with, you know, its partners like uh, like Resolve and Robin. I think that there is a possibility that just the, the process itself will change. You know, I'm optimistic, for instance, that that ultrasound product that I am really excited about. I think that women families are going to want less burden, more convenience in the process. So I do expect we'll see some changes there. If you really go out on a limb, you know, there's a lot of work going on right now around all the medications that people need to get that just to get eggs, right, to, to develop the follicles. And there's some interesting companies that are working on figuring out a way to do that that doesn't require all of the multiple, multiple medicines. And that, again, would really transform the space from a cost burden, all of those things standpoint as well. You know, the other thing I think we're going to see more and more egg freezing, right? That's starting to be a big, big topic out there. Women are talking about it. Very interesting that, you know, younger women are saying, wait, hey, wait a minute. You know, I know that my mom, for instance, had trouble because she waited, you know, X number of years to to have her babies. And then she was, you know, she had problems. How about I freeze my eggs now so that when I'm ready, whenever that may be to have a baby, I will be able to use my own eggs, right? So egg freezing is, is certainly something that we're starting to see grow. And I do predict because I'm hearing it more and more just from young women who have nothing to do with the medical industry who are like, Hey, what's this about like freezing my eggs? It's getting out there. Right. And so that's another prediction I would say is that we're going to see much, much increasing use of egg freezing as women become more you know, likely to delay childbearing. It's really interesting about the egg freezing. That was something that I haven't really heard about yet. Mm. So that's a really interesting development. 
I am now going to turn it over to our group social media editor, Miranda Schmalfis, who is going to talk about this week's leadership tip. Now it's time for this week's leadership tip. What's one leadership tip that you would like to share? My leadership tip is go for it. If there's something that you want to do, if there's a problem you want to solve, if there's an idea that you have, take it forward. Don't hesitate. Reach out to uh, people who can help you and give you advice and think forward about where you can get to by working on your passion. I have followed my passion throughout life. Women's health has always been my North Star. And because of that, I've just been so lucky to be able to contribute to women's health. And so again, I say go for it. Fantastic. That is all I have for today. Beth, thank you very much for joining me today. And I really appreciate your time and insight. Been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Farm Exec Podcast, where we take you behind the headlines to provide expert tips from industry leaders. Remember, you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at farmexec, on Instagram at farmexecutive, and on YouTube at Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of FarmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions or to get in touch with the editors, please email us at farmexec at mjhlifesciences.com. For sponsorship opportunities, please go to farmexec.com slash advertise. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time.